Open up your Bibles and turn to Psalm 12. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Psalm 12 on page 422. So grab a pew Bible and turn there. You can take a look in your, your bulletin as well to find Psalm 12. Uh, much of our time at this church, I think most of us uh, are aware, but uh, much of our time is spent working through whole entire books of the Bible. And that is, um, you know, done, done intentionally because we understand uh, the, the, point of, the point of sermons, the point of, of studying God's Word together, hearing it preached each, each Sunday morning, is so that we can, you know, hear God speak. God speaks through His Word, and so we find that it's best to kind of let God's Word speak on its own terms, right? Rather than like every Sunday, Ben or whoever's preaching says, what do I want to talk about? Okay, got it. Now let me uh, find a couple of verses that seem to be relevant to that so I can read them, and then I can just spend time talking what I want to talk about. We understand preaching to be, we want to hear from God. We want God's Word to speak on its own terms, and so we try to work through whole books of the Bible, tackling all of the issues that we come across as we, as we do. It's a practice called expositional preaching. But there's always uh, Sundays like today that are kind of like, uh, you know, yeah, just, just one-offs or kind of in between other books of the Bible that we're going through, guest preachers, things like that. And the Psalms work really nicely to study on Sundays like this because while you can, and I would certainly commend studying the entire Psalter, the, all of the Psalms together as one unit, there's 150 Psalms divided into five books, and they kind of do have a narrative flow to them, despite, you know, uh, yeah, might not be something that we're all aware of. So it is, there is value in looking at all of the psalms together as a psalter, but um, all of the 150 psalms, probably more than most chapters in the Bible, uh, can kind of stand on their own. And kind of, you can read them and study them and learn from them just as an isolated, self-contained unit. Um, and they're, they're, they're a great model, a great template for uh, our own prayers as, as uh, Christians, as the people of, of God. And so, We've gone through several dozen psalms uh, since, uh, since I've arrived here. My hope is to eventually preach through uh, either me or, or just to... My hope is eventually that uh, all 150 psalms will have been preached by someone in, in the pulpit in the coming years or, or, or decades. But, um, so for this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 12, which is a prayer of David, King David from Israel. Uh, and he kind of... The, the, the thrust is, that the, the theme is that, that David looks around at uh, sin in the world and the effects of sin in the world and prays uh, for God's judgment to come against sin, prays for God to bring mercy to his people uh, in, in the midst of the, the sin that they are experiencing. And then, and then trusts in God to do just that. So we're gonna we're gonna look at David's prayer. We're gonna consider how it might serve as a uh, as a template or as a as a model for what prayer uh, can look like in our in our own lives when we when we go before the Lord in prayer. So I'm gonna read uh, Psalm 12, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to spend a few minutes considering it and um, yeah, yeah, thinking about it together. It says, "Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone." The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, and those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us, so who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The Lord's words are, are, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, that your words are pure words. They are entirely right and just and good. We thank you that you are faithful to keep your word. And Lord, we just ask you that you would meet us here this morning, 
and speak to us through your word so that we can grow in our faith and be conformed to the image of Jesus, our great Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Verse 1, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. So David, this is King David. Uh, We're not entirely sure when this uh, psalm was written. A lot of the psalms, um, they specify when exactly during David's life they were written. This one was written when David was, you know, being chased by Saul and he was hiding in a cave. Or this one was written after David committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and he had been confronted by, by the prophet. You know, some of, but some of them we just kind of have to make our best educated uh, guess. And so uh, this, this psalm is about some time where David looked around in his life and saw sin running rampant, sinners running uh, unchecked, and just, you know, human depravity kind of getting worse and worse, so much so that he could look around and, and uh, you know, say, say that he thinks that maybe there are no godly people left on the planet. The, all of the faithful people have vanished from among the children of the children of man. So again, not sure. I mean, this could be this could be when uh, before as he's ascending to the throne of Israel, and uh, King Saul is attempting to uh, kill him. He could have felt like this. It could have been when David was uh, on the throne, seated, you know, as as the king of Israel, and he's you know defending the borders of the nation against neighboring uh, hostile uh, nations that are trying to attack and trying to kind of take uh, take over. You know, not, not sure when exactly it is. My guess is maybe uh, when Saul is, uh, yeah, as he's ascending to the throne and when Saul is chasing him. But he says, save, O Lord, the godly is gone. There, there's, no, there's no godly people left in the world. It's just me and, and no one else. This might sound a little familiar. We, we, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Romans 11, which uh, referenced 1 Kings 19, the story of uh, Elijah after he um, defeats the prophets of Baal and he's running and he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord. The, the people of Israel, right? So Elijah's sit praying to God and he says, God, I have been zealous for the Lord, but the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets and I am the only one that's left and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah was saying, all of the godly people in the world are gone and now they're trying to kill me. And God's response to Elijah was, uh, that that um, the godly people were not gone, but in fact God wa- God had saved, and He was in the process of preserving and keeping seven thousand people who had been faithful to Him and who had not bowed their knee to to Baal. And and Paul uh, referencing that, so that was First Kings nineteen. Paul in Romans eleven says uh, that was true in uh, the days of Elijah, and it's true now. God was keeping a remnant of faithful believers then, and he's keeping a remnant of faithful believers now, and he always will. And so there's a sense in which, you know, if we were to look around and say there's no godly person left in the world, all of the faithful people have vanished from among the children of man, uh, that is um, presumably not something that's going to happen, just from, from, uh, yeah, looking at Paul's words in Romans 11. But David here is... um, is writing a po- he's writing a song. This is David's a songwriter. He's a poet, and so he kind of um, you know uses some artistic license as he as he writes. And so he's probably not literally saying that there are no godly people on the planet uh, like Elijah was in First Kings nineteen. Um, rather, he's probably just saying that things have gotten really hard. <laughs> like I, I have enemies that are trying to overcome me. Things are very difficult. Things have gotten really, sin is running rampant and I am experiencing all of the painful results of, of sin when it is left unchecked in, uh, in a, a culture, in a society, in the people that are, that are close to me. Which I imagine may feel familiar to one degree or another to all of us at various times that we that, that the, the culture around us seems to be uh, deteriorating, right? We seem to be morally and spiritually devolving rather than evolving, that things are getting uh, worse and worse, that sin is getting worse and worse, that sinners are sinning with more and more boldness, 
that godly people who love Jesus and who want to follow Jesus are getting fewer and further uh, between, that our own attempts to walk with Jesus and be faithful to Jesus and obey him in our lives are becoming more and more difficult because of the friction that we um, are experiencing between those efforts and the, the world around us. Imagine that if you're a Christian trying to walk with Jesus in 2023, then, then David's words might ring true in some, in some sense. So he says, sin is getting worse and worse. It's running, it's running rampant. Godly people are being silenced and marginalized and, and kind of pushed out, and they have very little reach and very little influence and very little ability to affect the, the broader culture. And then this mass exodus... Of, of godly people from the public square that we see in verse 1, right? Godly people are gone. They're vanishing. This mass exodus is leaving a vacuum that's filled by, uh, verse 2, um, sin and, and sinners. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So everyone is lying, right? Uh, two, two sins that David points out when he looks at the world around him that are particularly um, you know, odious to him are that of dishonesty and, and flattery. Dishonesty, everyone, is, is, everyone others lies to their, their neighbor. When you, when you go into a room, when you go into a community, a nation, a, a culture that's filled with, with godly people who love the Lord and who are actively trying to obey his word and repent of their sin, there's going to be um, a, a baseline level of honesty that people are going to at least attempt to use to communicate with each other because that's what God has commanded, right? God has commanded us not to bear false witness. He's commanded you to let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But one of the things that happens as sin starts to work its way through a culture Right, like yeast through a batch of dough, right? As sin starts to work its way in and there are less godly people and more people who are not filled with the Holy Spirit and have no desire or intention to walk with God, one of the things that starts to happen is that people uh, tell the truth a lot less and they feel freedom to be dishonest a lot more. Because telling the truth is not always convenient. Lying is almost always convenient. Lying is almost always a frictionless uh, experience. Lying is almost always, you know, it, it kind of tweaks or, um, you know, uh, it, it, it alters the, the circumstances um, to, to, you know, to be in your own best interest, to work out to your benefit, right? People don't lie and misrepresent the truth in ways that hurt them or inconvenience them. They do them in ways that, that help them, um, and that, uh, yeah, make, make the situation more favorable for them themselves. I'm going to misrepresent what happened to cast myself in a more favorable light, right? I'm going to uh, bend the truth so that I'll get rewarded for something that I didn't do or something so that I won't get in trouble for something that I did do so that I can keep this ill-gotten gain and no one else will find out about it. And so David is saying, as sin begins to, you know, operate with more force in a society, lies become more commonplace and the truth becomes more rare. That's the first sin that he points out. And the second one is, is similar to it. It's kind of a subset of it, which is flattery. So if dishonesty or lying is just not telling the truth, then, then flattery is a specific kind of dishonesty where you're dishonest with someone, uh, telling them things that you know that they want to hear in the hopes that it will benefit you in some way, in the, in the hopes that it will ingratiate them to you or make them like you or put them in your debt or make them more willing to say back to you things that you want to hear regardless of whether they are true or not. It's flattery. Right? Someone who always, always says yes to their boss right? Uh, you know, wh whether they're right or wrong, whether it's good or bad. Someone who justifies or excuses bad behavior from their friends or family members and always sides with them no matter what, even when they're clearly in the wrong and need to repent, right? Might call it being loyal or might call it being a good friend, um, but that's another way 
presumably of saying uh, flattery, saying things that are not true, that you know someone wants to hear because it will benefit you. And so say, uh, David says, things are getting worse, sin is getting worse. It's taking its toll on humanity. There are fewer and fewer godly people with less and less influence, and the result is less and less truth. More and more people are lying to each other. More and more people are flattering each other with dishonest and disingenuous talk. Which The problem then is that this um, forces this kind of uh, downward spiral. It's, it's kind of a snowball effect, right? Uh, you know, a preponderance of dishonesty and lies and flattery, it's almost like an immune system uh, that, that you, know, w- w- uh, you know, a culture without its immune system st- is going to get worse and, and worse, right? It loses its ability to self-correct, right? If, the, if there's no uh, foundation of truth in a culture, if the culture cannot determine what's true from what's false because there's so much falsehood and not enough truth, it loses its foundation. And then uh, if no one is willing to address one another, correct one another, confront one another, because we're all so busy flattering one another and affirming each other and telling each other how great we are uh, and that we don't ever need to change or grow or repent or mature, that is kind of this like death spiral for a culture, right? Lies and, and flattery. And interestingly enough, when you think about God's intention, God's vision for the church, it's the exact opposite of that, right? Instead of being built on uh, dishonesty and flattery, like David says the world is built on as sin begins to affect it more and more, the church was intended to be built on uh, the truth and discipling relationships. So not lies and flattery, but, but truth and discipling uh, relationships. Matthew 16, kind of the first uh, time that we see the word church mentioned, uh, you know, Jesus asks Peter, you know, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, uh, you are the, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God who, you know, came here to save us from our sin. Peter kind of gives Jesus his profession of who he understands Jesus to be. And Jesus says back to him, right, uh, on this rock, right, Peter, on this rock, this profession of faith that you just made, I'm going to build my church. The church itself is going to be built on the rock of Peter's profession of faith, of the truth of the the gospel. So the, the foundation of the church is not lies and dishonesty and falsehood, but it's truth. It's the truth of God's word. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So the world... Uh, is marked by lies, the church is built on the foundation of truth, the world is marked by flattery, and the church, conversely, is marked by uh, real, honest, discipling relationships, right? Where we confront, admonish, rebuke one another uh, as, as necessary. The world, the world is perfectly content to say, you do you, I'll do me, you live by your truth, I'll live by my truth. If it, if it looks to me like your truth is ruining your life, that's your problem, not mine. If you are spending recklessly, hemorrhaging more money than you are bringing in, that's your business, I don't want to pry. If you're throwing yourself into all kinds of sin that are going to have profound, negative, long-term impacts on your life and relationships, it's not my place to judge. You're acting foolishly, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting others. I'm just going to keep my head down, mind my own business, I'm going to leave you to learn your own lessons, or I'll just affirm you in that sin and folly and just tell you to keep doing it even more because I don't want anyone to think that I'm judgmental or self-righteous. That's the, that's the spirit of the world. Don't ever confront anyone, don't ever correct anyone, always just flatter people. And God's design for the church is the exact opposite. I saved you. I called you out of your former way of life into a new life, reconciled to me, your heavenly father, with a a new family within the people of God, right? One of the distinctives of the the church, the family of God, is that we uh, lean in and we are involved in each other's lives. We don't just say, well, I'm going to walk with Jesus And as for everyone else, I wish you the best of luck. 
walking with Jesus on your own. Uh, I hope that it works out well for you. The, 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 the distinctive of the church is that we say, I'm going to walk with Jesus and I'm going to help you walk with Jesus. I'm going to be invested in whether or not you, my fellow church members, are walking with Jesus with me, and I want you, my fellow church members, to be invested in whether I am walking with Jesus with you. So if someone comes to you and uh, has a desire to grow and they ask for help, right, we as church members help one another to walk with Jesus, even if they don't come to you. If you see a fellow church member that has an area where they need to grow, right, you can address it. And encourage them, and if necessary, admonish or rebuke them so that we can all grow in our relationships with God together. That's, that's discipleship. That's what it means to, to have discipling relationships. We all follow Jesus, and we all help one another to also follow Jesus. And so the world, according to David, is marked by dishonesty and flattery. And the church is marked by, it rests on the foundation of truth, and it's marked by real, honest, sometimes difficult and unpleasant, but real and honest discipling relationships where we correct and even rebuke and, and help one another to follow, to follow Jesus. But, so verses 1 and 2, David's looking around. He's observing the world around him, right? There, there are fewer and fewer godly people. It looks like every godly person has vanished from the children of man, right? Sin is running rampant. Lies, deceit, flattery. That's kind of his observation, description of the world around him. But it's not like he's just saying, this is what I see around me, uh, and, and I, I wish it were different. This is what I see around me. What a shame. But he sees it and he actively prays that God would oppose and put an end, put a stop to these particular sins. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that, boasts, the, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. So, Paul's, or, so David is saying, Here's this bad thing that I'm observing, dishonesty and flattery, and I'm praying. I'm actively praying that God would actively intervene, intercede, stop it, put an end to it, and cut them off entirely. And he throws in a third sin, right? So the say, yeah, dishonesty and flattery, but then this third sin of boasting, pride, self-exaltation. With our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with, right? I'm so smart. I'm so elegant. I'm so savvy. I, you know, have such a way with words. Who could possibly be a master over me? That's what David is observing in the people around him. People who are proud, people who are arrogant, people who are dishonest, people who flatter others to get what they want. And he says, I pray that the Lord would cut that off. I pray that the Lord would, would actively stop it and put an end to it. This is what theologians call uh, imprecatory prayer, a prayer of imprecation, which just means praying that God would bring his judgment and, and even punishment against sin and, and sinners and, and evil and wrongdoers. Imprecatory prayers, if you look around the, the landscape of the modern church today, you won't see a lot of imprecatory prayers. The idea that we should want and desire and pray for and hope for God to bring judgment against sin and for God to actively stop sinners from sinning more and more uh, is not, um, not the, you won't see that a lot. You won't, you won't find a lot of books about prayer in the Christian bookstore with verses like this, right? That, that I pray that God would cut off my enemies and bring severe judgment against them because of their unrepentant sin. That's what David prays. Please intervene. Please stop sin from becoming more powerful. Please stop it in our society. Please stop it in our culture. Please stop it in my own heart. Don't see those a lot. I would imagine that a lot of us might feel weird praying an imprecatory prayer because it just feels, it feels weird. It feels like it's not, there's something, something not, not right about it. But there are dozens, 
There are dozens of psalms that, that uh, contain and, and are uh, imprecatory prayers. We see them all throughout Scripture. The people of God asking God to bring judgment against sin and sinners. And so I would submit that if we are not okay with the idea of, of praying an imprecatory prayer, that is probably not because of something bad or inherently wrong with imprecatory prayers in and of themselves, since they're in the Bible, it's probably something wrong with our own hearts or our own ability to understand uh, and, and, and submit to Scripture when we see things, things like this. So, um, caveat, right, kind of, kind of uh, qualify it by saying, I, I definitely think that there are ways to pray imprecatory prayers that are wrong and sinful and bad. Right? If you were to say, God, I'm mad at this person for not doing what I wanted them to do. I'm mad at them because they confronted me uh, over my sin. I'm mad at them because they have the audacity to disagree with me and not defer to me and not walk on eggshells around me and not treat me like royalty. I'm mad about all of that, and so I pray that bad things would happen to them because of it. Uh, I would submit that that's an imprecatory prayer that is wrong and sinful. But I think there are imprecatory prayers like this one right here that are perfectly good and, and viable and, and, and acceptable to, to pray. Right? God, I'm looking at the sin in, I'm looking at sin all around me, running rampant, running unchecked, lying, cheating, stealing, hurting, abusing exploiting, oppressing, and I pray that you would put an end to it. I pray that you would not just stop it, but I pray that you would bring justice, make, it, make things right. Bring about your perfect judgment that is righteous and just and, and good. That's an imprecatory prayer. And I think that Christians can and should pray prayers like that frequently in their, in their lives. And here's, a, here's a, a, a big reason why I think imprecatory prayers are not inherently wrong and why they're, in fact, necessary for Christians to pray in our lives. We all have, just, just deep down inside of us, we all have a, a desire for, a longing for justice to be done. Part of what it means to be created as a human being in God's image is that you long for and desire for justice to be done. You, you, you don't want to see sin go unpunished or unaddressed. We all have this, this, we all have this, like, this like baked into us. We all have this, this notion that, that sin needs to be. This, this is what cancel culture is, right? Is, is you know, uh, uh, there's something someone did wrong and I... Uh, want there to be judgment, right? We can't turn a blind eye to this sin and wrongdoing, so we have to, we have to make sure that that person is punished to my satisfaction. You know, I'm, you know, not a, I mean, I, I think that much about cancel culture is decidedly not Christian and is wrong, m- much largely because the impulse there is, uh, here's a sin and I, I think it, it, it needs to be punished, and I have appointed myself judge and jury and executioner, and I want to make sure that, that you know, that this person is punished to my uh, level of, of satisfaction until I say so. So much about cancel culture is wrong, but, but the impulse that it's born out of is that, is that impulse of wanting to see sin not ignored, wanting to see sin judged and, and dealt with, and so that impulse, if without imprecatory prayers, that desire to want to see the cosmic scales of justice come into balance, wanting to see sin punished, without something like an imprecatory prayer, that's going to manifest itself in, that will, will take up residence in your heart and manifest itself in anger, bitterness, holding a grudge trying to get revenge, right? I have this innate, instinctive desire to see sin punished, 
And so you have hurt me. You have sinned against me. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to hold on to it for my whole life. I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm going to get my vengeance. I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Because after all, if no one else, I mean, if, if I don't do it, no one else will. And what an imprecatory prayer does is it, it releases that, that uh, obligation to the Lord, right? This person has sinned against me, and I know deep in my soul that they need to, to reckon with that sin. They need to answer for it. They need to be punished or judged for it. And an imprecatory prayer is, is a Christian saying, but I'm not going to insist on me being the one who meets out that punishment. I'm going to entrust that to the Lord. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell God how I've been sinned against, and I'm going to pray that God would do what is just and right, and I'm going to pray that God would uh, respond to this person's sin in a way that is good and just and right. And in so doing, I am now freed up to love my neighbor even if they sin against me which is exactly what Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12. We're going to get there after the new year. One of the things he says in Romans 12 is, Christian, do not take revenge for yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because God has said that it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul says, it's not your job as a Christian to make sure that everyone who sins against you is punished accordingly. It's not your job to make sure that you get final justice for everything that everyone does to you because God's going to do that. Every sin that is committed against you will be paid for in full, either by that person in hell or by Jesus Christ on the cross. No one is going to sin against you ever, and then that sin go unaddressed, unaccounted for, unpunished, or, or you know, ignored or dismissed. And an imprecatory prayer is, is acknowledging that reality. God, you are the judge, you are the king, please bring about judgment even punishment that is right and just and good in response to this sin that I have, have experienced. Imprecatory prayer is crucial. It's, it, you, Christians need it to get, it's, it's a release valve to get that bitterness and that anger that is the result of that desire for justice. It gets it out of our heart and says, God, I'm going to entrust this matter of judgment to you so I don't have to be the judge anymore. So verses 1 through 2, the reality of sin, the, the, uh, the comprehensiveness and the pervasiveness of sin. Verses 3 and 4, praying that God would bring judgment against sin and sinners. And then verse 5, we see God respond. Because the needy, or because the poor are plundered, and because the needy groan, I will now arise, and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Which is interesting because David's prayer was, God, please cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, right? Cut them off, right? Bring judgment and punishment against sinners. And God's response is, because the poor are plundered, I will arise and place them in safety. So David's prayer is, put an end to sin, bring judgment against sinners, and God's response is, I am going to save and help and take care of and, and, and protect and keep safe those people who are suffering and who are the victims of sin. So the prayer is judgment against sinners. The answer is help and relief for people who are suffering, which we might look at it, and at first glance, they don't seem like the same thing. It looks like God is not answering David's prayer. David prayed for judgment against sinners, and God's answer was relief for victims of sin and sufferers. But it's not that God is not hearing David properly. It's not that God doesn't care about David's initial uh, prayer. It's that God sees those two things as one and the same, as inseparable, right? Relief for sufferers 
and judgment for sin and sinners is, is they're linked together. So when God hears one and, and answers, like th- this is God's answer to David's prayer because those two things go together. Judgment for sinners and relief for sufferers. There are a lot of Christians that are concerned with one, but not necessarily with the other. On either side of the divide, right? There's a lot of Christians that, you know, again, and it's not a right or left thing, but, right, you know, judgment against sin. So sexual immorality, abortion, racism, human trafficking, uh, father, fathers abandoning their families, right? We see all of this sin, it's upsetting, and we want justice, and we want the people who are committing those sins to be held accountable, and that impulse is good and right and, and just. Some Christians are more concerned with relief for sufferers. So rescuing children who have been trafficked, care and advocacy and uh, you know, women and children who have been abandoned. Let's, let's provide for them. Let's make sure that let's meet their needs. Foster care, adoption, after school, m- mentoring. Re- you know, we want to intervene. We want to help and take care of people. And though that impulse is good and right and just. And I think the point is it's the same thing, right? R- relief for sufferers and judgment for sin are the same thing. If we are more concerned with one or the other, and if we are indifferent to one or the other, then I would submit that we are uh, missing the heart of God. If we're more concerned with relief for sufferers and we are indifferent to judgment against sin, then we've missed some, something about the heart of God. If we're more concerned about judgment against sin, but we are indifferent to the plight of and to, to trying to relieve those who are suffering, we've missed something about the heart of, of God. God cares about both. God is calling us as his people to... Imagine someone who... Imagine someone who, like, they, they cared a lot about domestic violence, and they in, invested a ton of time and money and resources into providing, you know, care for women and children who are victims of domestic violence, and then whenever a person was arrested for domestic violence, they would go protest and, and you know, call for the charges to be dropped, and, and the, he lobbies Congress to see all of the people convicted of domestic violence to be released immediately so that they can go back into society and do what they were doing before. There's a, there's a cognitive dissonance there between wanting relief for people who are suffering and, and being indifferent to judgment for the sin that they were suffering under. You can't care about people who are being sinned against and then say, but I don't care whether the sinners are brought to justice or not. You can't, and the same thing, you can't care about sin and be offended by it, but then say, I don't care about the people who are being sinned against and who are suffering as a result of it. Judgment for sinners and relief for sufferers go hand in hand, and God sees them as inseparably linked together, as being the same so this is because the poor are plundered because the needy grown i will arise i will place them in the safety for which right so you know the the vulnerable people who are being sinned against i hear their cries i hear their prayers i don't not care and i'm going to come to them i'm going to draw near to them i'm going to intervene on their behalf and advocate for them and then verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So God's word, the word of the Lord, God's word is true and right and pure. The way that you would refine silver and precious metals in the ancient world is you would put it into a furnace, heat it up to extremely hot temperatures, the hotter it would get, the more uh, impurities within that metal would rise to the top, and then you would like skim the impurities off the top, and it would become more and more pure and better and more valuable. 
The more times you do it and the hotter temperatures that you use to do it, the more and more impurities you would skim away and the purer and the better that silver would be. And so David is saying, take the best, purest silver you can find, throw it into the hottest furnace that you can find, isolate and remove all of the impurities that you can find to make the silver as pure and perfect as you possibly can, and then do that over and over and over again seven times, and now you're starting to get a picture for how pure and how perfect and how priceless and how glorious and how beautiful and how uh, you know, highly esteemed God's Word is. All of the impurities, the, the dishonesty, the flattery, the, the pride, all of the impurities are skimmed away. And what's left is God's perfect, true, right, pure word. This, this verse right here and others like it are why we hold to the doctrine of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Because God's word is true, it is pure, like silver refined in a, in a furnace several times over. And what's also interesting about verses 5 and 6 together, similar to what we looked at in verses 3 and 4 and following, but we see kind of two, two truths side by side that kind of get at this tension that we, you know, we, it gets at this some, something counterintuitive about the heart of God, that, that God cares about people, particularly people who are hurting and suffering, and God cares about truth. And he cares about the truth of his word. And he cares about uh, true words being spoken rather than, rather than false words. And so there are a lot of Christians, again, that care about truth. This is the truth. This is the word, right? That, that, you know, they know all the arguments. They can defend every doctrine. They can uh, debate anyone and, and prove or persuade or convince people that God's word is true. They can point out falsehood in the world and point people to truth in God's word. Maybe Christians like that start ministries that revolve around teaching and preaching and exposition and, and doctrine. And then there's other Christians who care a lot about people particularly people who are hurting and suffering. So they have a lot of empathy and they listen well and they care and they bear people's burdens and they rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and people feel safe around them and their ministries tend to revolve around meeting needs and caring for people. So there are Christians who care about the truth of God's word and there's Christians who care about people who are hurting and God cares about both of them. God cares in verse 5 about people who are hurting, and God cares in verse 6 about the truth of his word. And we should care about both. And we, as Christians, should look inwardly at our own hearts and consider from time to time, do I care about the things that God cares about? Am I emphasizing some things that God cares about, and rightfully so, while de-emphasizing or being indifferent to other things that God also cares about. Do I care about, his tr- do I care about truth as much as God cares about truth, or am I neglecting it out of fear, afraid of what people will think of me? And do I care about people who are hurting as much as God cares about them, or am I neglecting them out of uh, selfishness or indifference because I don't want to deal with the messiness? If I find myself caring way more about one than the other, then maybe that's an occasion to repent and to align our hearts with the heart of God. Words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. And then verse 7, You, O Lord, you will keep them, your words. You will keep your word, you will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of, of man. So, so David 
trusts that God will keep his word, trusts that God will guard him from sin and from like, the, the sin and the effects of sin that he was describing up in uh, verses 1 and 2. David says, I trust that you will protect me from it. Which is interesting because in verses 3 and 4, David was praying that God would cut off sin and sinners and effectively protect him from sin. And so, so verses 3 and 4, he's asking God to protect him from sin and sinners. And in verse 7 and 8, he's trust saying that he believes and trusts that God will protect him and guard him from sin and, and sinners. Which I think is a critical piece that we need to understand about prayer and, and what it is. It's, it's, it's two things at the same time. It's, it's asking boldly and honestly for things that we need and trusting that God is going to give us those things. Without a doubt, unequivocally. It's, it's, godly prayer has both of those things. It's asking and trusting at the same time. When you, when you go for a job interview... Right? You're, you don't know if they're going to hire you or not. So you go in there, resume, interview, trying to answer all the questions. You're, when you go for a job interview, you're effectively asking them to give you a job. And you have no idea whether they're going to or not. Very little certainty as to whether you're going to get that job or not. When you go to the bank to withdraw money that you deposited last week, you have, you're certain that you're... You're very confident that they're going to give you, you know, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, right? I gave you a check for $500, I want to make, you know, make, it, make it happen. Prayer is this weird thing in the middle where we are both asking God for something that we don't have, don't have any right to, we're not entitled to, God is not obligated to give us at all. And yet, at the same time, we are trusting God with this bold, ruthless confidence that God is going to answer. He is going to provide. Because God's answering our prayer is not rooted in who we are or what we have done or whether we deserve what it is that we are praying for. God's answer to our prayer is rooted in himself and his character and his kindness and his word and his ability to keep his word. And so when we pray, we are asking for things like David does in verses 1 through 4, and we are trusting God to provide like he does in verses 7 through, through 8. Right, some of our prayer lives um, are high on asking and low on trusting, right? God, I need this. God, I'm praying that you would provide this thing. I want this person to come to know Christ. I want to grow in this, this way. Here are all the things that I need. You say, that's great. Do you actually think that God is going to do any of them? I don't know. If I'm honest, probably not. I've been praying for this thing for a long time. Haven't really seen any answers. Seems like a long shot. I'll ask for them, but I'm not going to hold my breath, and I'm not really trusting that God is going to do it. That is not godly prayer. That's not, that's not what we see David doing here, and it doesn't reflect a, a high view of God's sovereignty and God's heart. So some of our prayer lives have a lot of trusting, but not a lot of, of asking. Wait, yeah, and then the flip side, right? Some of our prayer lives, a lot of asking, not a lot of trusting. Some have a lot of trusting and just not a lot of asking. So, right, name it, claim it. God, I want, I want to be healthy. I want to be prosperous. I expect nothing less. I expect God to do as I say on my timeline, according to my will, the way I want him to do it, which is heresy, right? You've made yourself out to be God, and you've placed God into this subservient role beneath you and your own desires. And godly prayer, biblical prayer, like we see David embodying here, is both asking and trusting. God, please bring judgment against sin. Here are the ways that people are sinning against me. I'm praying that you would put a stop to it. I'm praying that you would intervene on my half and save me. And... 
Your word is true. I trust that you are going to keep your word. I trust that you are going to protect me from the evil and sin that is all around me, even as it presses in from every side. I trust that you are going to answer the prayer that I just asked you to do just three verses earlier because you are good. Friends, when you pray to God, pray boldly, ask boldly, for everything that you need, for all of the things that you want, because God is your Father, and God wants to hear your requests being brought to Him. Ask God and trust God. Trust that He is good. Trust that He is faithful. Trust that He keeps His word. Trust that He has made promises to you and that He will keep those promises. Right? You don't need to worry or fret about whether or not God will keep his promises, you can know and trust that he will because God is sovereign over all things. So verses 1 to 2, the reality of sin, the effects of sin. Verses 3 to 4, David praying that God would bring judgment against sin and sinners. Verses 5 and 6, God responds by advocating for people who are hurting and suffering. And then verses 7 and 8, God is faithful to keep his word, and we can trust him to do it forever. And this is a model, this is a template for the posture that we can take when we come to the Lord in prayer. We can look honestly at our own life, at the, at the world around us. We can acknowledge the sin and brokenness that we see there. We can ask God for mercy. We can ask him to bring his sovereign, righteous judgment against sin. And then we can trust God and trust that he is faithful to keep his word. And we can trust that his grace is greater than the sin that is in our own hearts, and that is in the world around us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we feel with David that, that uh, the world around us is all too often disconcerting, even depressing. Sometimes it feels like there are no godly people left and that faithful Christians have vanished entirely because of sin and selfishness and dishonesty and and pride. And so, God, we pray that you would bring your righteous judgment against sin, even including our own sin. We pray that you would bring judgment against our own sin in our own lives. And we pray that you would save your people and keep your people. And Lord, we trust you that you will do it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.